Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Emma. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Metastatic Prostate Cancer, Current Treatment Advances. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Estellas Scientific and Medical Affairs, Inc., and Medivation a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of people on the call today. There's over 210 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Australia, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, Israel, Italy, Morocco, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. So it's a really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. This is a global call, actually, so lots of you on the call. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Slovin. Dr. Slovin is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Wild College of Cornell University. And Dr. Slovin will be addressing an overview of the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, the role of chemotherapy, targeted treatments, and precision medicine, advances in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, including new and emerging treatments, and tips to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slovin. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and welcome to everyone. Dr. Mesner always gives me a, uh, a full plate. I can't get a half a plate every time I, I join everybody, but I'm hoping to give you the highlights of some of the uh, very small topics that have been alluded to by Dr. Mesner. So a few words about COVID-19. There is no question that COVID has been a challenge to both practitioners and patients alike. In many of our cases, we've had to change to telemedicine, which is relevant for some patients, but clearly is not appropriate for patients who have active cancer that really needs to be treated. A lot of our patients are relying heavily on telemedicine as a new venue for their care, although I would indicate to everybody and provide caution that there is nothing like a physical exam as opposed to telemedicine. You get your hands on a patient, you can determine if there's lymph node disease, you can see anything that's abnormal. And the one thing that's very important in being a caregiver, of course, as a, as a physician, is really having an interaction with the patient. There are very relevant interactions for some people who don't need to be seen. They're on minimal treatment or just active surveillance, but the patients who really are on active therapy really do need to be evaluated because of intercurrent issues of which they may be unaware. 
COVID is, has been and continues to be a challenge, and I really have to share that I'm actually very disappointed in the fact that many of our patients are not continuing to receive their booster immunizations. I have uh, quite a number of patients who, after their first two COVID injections, actually abandoned any further surveillance and yet have uh, developed COVID, although thankfully on a milder level, but nevertheless felt they didn't need it, it wasn't helpful or relevant to, to them. I would again stress that uh, we as physicians, uh, most of us I would imagine have had all five immunizations, but it really is extremely important for patients to do maintain their normal uh, health maintenance, which would include uh, injections or vaccines for uh, various viruses, including flu or uh, uh, prevention of herpes zoster, not to mention COVID. So I, I do very strongly stress that, the, that you get them done. Having had COVID or getting COVID immunizations is not a deterrent to treatment. We just hold the treatment and then when a patient is no longer COVID positive and or doing better physically, uh, we will resume. So if anybody thinks that they're going to get away with treatment because they are COVID negative now or had COVID before, the answer is you do need to continue your treatment. So enough said, so to speak, but I think it's important for us to talk about how we deal with prostate cancer that has spread either in the first-line setting, what we call de novo metastatic, meaning that the patient just walked through the door, has not received any treatment, and has disease that is beyond the prostate in bone or lymph nodes or other sites. And this is in contradistinction to patients who have had other therapies first, such as surgery or radiation, or surgery and radiation, have received hormonal therapy uh, and have had either continued rises in their PSA, where their current treatment is no longer working, or they've had several treatments and now the disease has continued to progress to other sites within the body. So it's wonderful for me to tell you that for patients who have newly diagnosed disease meaning disease that has presented to bone or other sites at diagnosis without any prior treatment. We have about seven treatments, if you can imagine. In the old days, we just started an injection with a GnRH and, uh, agonist or antagonist, dropped the PSA, and everything would be better. But now we have many phase three randomized trials that suggest that we are not only improving quality of life by combining hormonal injections with uh, various hormone pills, but also continuing to improve quality of life and disease control for many years thereafter. So in addition to our standard of care platform, which is always the hormone injection, which drops the testosterone and starves the cancer of the male hormone, we know that there is exceptional benefit to the combination of hormones with a variety of hormonal agents, in particular a drug called abiraterone, A-B-I-R-A-T-E-R-O-N-E. Its other name is Zytiga, Z-Y-T-I-G-A. Or a hormone can be given with a medication called enzalutamide, E-N-Z-A-L-U-T-A-M-I-D-E. 
The other name for that is Xtandi, X-T-A-N-D-I. Or, you notice there's a lot of ors, hormonal injection along with a drug called apalutamide, A-P-A-L-U-T-A-M-I-D-E. The other name for that is Erlita, E-R-L-E-A-D-A. All of these have shown significant benefit, but there's more. The addition of chemotherapy to a hormone injection has also shown significant benefit in patients who have a lot of metastatic areas in their body, in bone, for example. It has been shown to improve quality of life, not to mention improve disease control. However, more recently, we are now looking at other ways of improving on everything that we've done. Uh, We term that dose intensification. And really what that means is that we're not giving higher doses. What we're trying to do is combine what we would consider to be a multi-modality treatment, meaning not only using hormonal therapy, but combining it with both the hormone pills and chemotherapy together. And that has shown tremendous improvement in a variety of different parameters. So now we not only have the hormone injection, but we have it given together with uh, Zytiga as well as chemotherapy, which is docetaxel, or we're giving it with hormonal therapy with a pill called darolutamide, D-A-R-O-L-U-T-A-M-I-D-E, as well as chemotherapy. So if you can imagine seven treatments when you walk in the door. Are they all equal? Yes, they all have similar benefits. Side effects, of course, are different for each medication that's being used. But every doctor who meets with a patient will be discussing the pros and cons of each treatment based on the existing medications that you may be on, how fit you are physically, and whether or not there are any drug interactions. So that's the wonderful news that we have. For patients who have been on other therapies and have had surgery or radiation or both and have failed multiple treatments, chemotherapy is still <clears throat> excuse me, a, a major uh, benefit to most people, and we have dose, both docetaxel in the frontline setting followed by another chemotherapy called cabazitaxel. Now, while these are all wonderful to use, nevertheless, there is always room for a clinical trial in patients who have failed multiple therapies. We have other approaches that we're now using in order to really determine what's a a better benefit to the patient. So nowadays, what we all are trying to do is do a variety of what we call genomic profiling. This is a way of looking at the heritable uh, genes that could be passed on to your family or to identify changes within the cancer itself that may make the cancer more uh, amenable to a variety of new agents out there. It's what we call precision medicine, which is a form of medicine that really uses information about a patient's own genes to either prevent or diagnose or treat the disease. So some patients who may have a history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer in the family may find that they have the BRCA or what we call breast cancer 
BRCA2 gene, which makes them very susceptible to a class of drugs known as PARP, P-A-R-P inhibitors. These are drugs that prevent the cancer cell from repairing the breaks in the DNA that causes cell death. And that DNA break is usually as a result of chemotherapy or hormonal agents. So that's precision medicine, and that's really very helpful. What about in patients who, for example, have failed standard therapies and are looking for a more targeted approach? So what do we mean by targeted? We're looking for a marker on the cancer cell that is indicative of uh, uh, a means by which we can direct a cancer therapy. So many of you know about PSA, right? Prostate-specific antigen. That's the marker we follow in the blood that helps us uh, determine your progress or failure uh, of treatment. It's not the only thing we use. Most of us would argue that looking at scans is much more helpful than following PSA all the time. Nevertheless, there's another marker called prostate-specific membrane antigen, otherwise known as PSMA. Now, this is a marker that is on cancer cells as they become more and more resistant to treatment. It is also a marker that is seen on cells that are uh, newly diagnosed. So, for example, it's the, the actual rationale for having uh, the development of several new imaging scans that are directed to look for PSMA before somebody goes for surgery, to detect recurrence after surgery or radiation, or to determine whether or not a suspicious lesion is in fact due to prostate cancer that could not otherwise be seen on bone imaging. However, from what we call theranostics, or a way of using imaging in combination to target therapy, we now have a new FDA-approved treatment called lutetium-177 PSMA. Lutetium is L-U-T-E-T-I-U-M. Now, this was a uh, based on a very large phase three randomized trial that indicated that one could deliver radiation internally to the body by taking a beta emitter, so it's just a radioactive compound called lutetium that is hooked up to a small molecule of PSMA. That PSMA molecule seeks out and tries to bind to the cancer cell that expresses PSMA. When it does, it gets internalized into the cell and the radioactive portion of it is broken off and causes cell damage. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have already been told that the drug which is produced by Novartis is on hold due to uh, awaiting FDA approval for the standard of care production of this drug. Uh, I want to reaffirm that this drug is not the be-all and end-all of your treatment. It does work for patients, but it, just like chemotherapy, it will work for some patients better than others. But there are still a tremendous number of treatments that are out there in spite of that. It's just one of many different approaches that are being used and of which I'm sure you are all aware. 
I do want to make some just closing remarks about managing treatment side effects and symptoms. Uh, if patients have bone pain, uh, we do like to either try to manage things on our own with the standard of care medications such as uh, acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, et cetera. But very often we do reach out to our pain and palliative care colleagues. Now, for some reason, this seems to get everybody very worried when you talk about having palliative care doctors involved. Palliative care does not mean you are ready for hospice or at the end of your life, and that is why we are reaching out. Palliative care is really a group of doctors who should be involved with you from diagnosis until beyond. The reason is, is that there are side effects from drugs or side effects from the disease that sometimes uh, need to be better managed than what your medical oncologist or urologist can do. And these are people who work with us to help provide comfort for you. It's not end stage. It's just these are people we turn to. If your toe is bothering you, let's talk to the pain and palliative care people about that. So please don't be shy. For other Areas that may be bothering you persistently, we've used radiation. We even use a radioactive compound called radium-223. It's a way of delivering also radiation purely to sites of active disease in bone for improvement of symptoms. In, in total, we have so many different things to offer these days that no one should feel desperate. And as you will hear from Dr. Zalewski, we work very closely with multimodality approaches to try to really make people feel better. And with that, Carolyn, uh, back to you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Slevin. That was really an outstanding presentation, Stellar, and actually you set the stage for the entire program today, so thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Zalewski, and Dr. Zalewski is Professor of Radiation Oncology, Greenberg Chair of Prostate Cancer Research, Chief Brachytherapy Service, Director of Prostate Cancer Radiotherapy, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Zalewski will be addressing an overview of radiation treatments, including types of radiation treatments for metastatic prostate cancer, updates on the treatment and care of bone metastases and pain management with radiation treatment, the important role of clinical trials, and how research increases treatment options. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Zalewski. Thank you very much, and it's um, a pleasure to be on the call. Uh, and uh, speak to you all about the role of radiation therapy uh, for the treatment of metastases. And I think uh, it's very clear that Dr. Sloven has really eloquently addressed the treatment options associated with uh, uh, interventions for metastatic disease. And I can say that over the last number of years, there clearly have been improvements, as you heard um, beautifully explained by her, the multiple different options available and the uh, expectation that there would be uh, improved results, improved responses in the treatment of this disease. But let's go back to some basics. And the basics would be that radiation therapy for years has been used as an effective treatment intervention in the uh, 
uh, care of patients with metastatic disease. In prostate cancer, for instance, it is in bone. And generally, when it is a situation where it is painful, um, the uh, expectation that radiation, often given in five or ten treatments, could actually significantly alleviate pain in 70 to 80 percent of patients who are treated. And so in addition to the uh, hormonal therapy agents that have been explained and uh, the other approaches such as chemotherapy, radiation is often used to target specific areas uh, that are the cause of pain and, as I mentioned, address these in a very effective fashion. Now the question comes up as to how many radiation treatments need to be given to alleviate pain. And in past years when I've been discussing this, the standard regimen had always been 10 sessions delivered over two weeks targeted to the abnormal region seen on the scans. And studies that have been done now indicate, especially for people with a little more limited uh, disease in the bones, that a higher dose at each treatment session, but fewer sessions, would even be associated with better results. At our institution at Memorial Sloan Kettering and others have done things similarly, where we compared people getting one shot of radiation to three shots of radiation and compared to even the five or ten shots, it would appear that those patients who received a higher dose at each session, especially three and even one large targeted treatment session, which is called a fraction, had clearly better results in alleviating pain and actually improvement noted on scans such as the bone scan or a CAT scan or an MRI. So over the last number of years, we've learned that treatments that are focused, targeted, and given at a higher dose level with generally shorter number of sessions as opposed to protracted number of sessions uh, have been associated with better results, better results in terms of alleviating pain and better results in that these growths in the bone would less often come back and be a source of problems down the road for the individual. So that's very promising. And now, many radiation oncologists treat their patients with these shorter courses, sometimes using a form of radiation called stereotactic body radiotherapy, or abbreviated in its acronym SBRT. And it's not for everybody, but if the disease in the bone is limited to several areas, not that many, this may be an option for patients who have the need to get treatment. As Dr. Sloven uh, 
explained so well, the re- results of Theranostic from the vision trial, uh, which utilized this form of internal radiation as seekers of sites of metastatic disease had shown significant improvement compared to standard of care regimens. And so we're emerging with radiation, not only what we call external radiation, but even this internalized radiation that is targeted to sites of areas which would demonstrate a PSMA pickup. Now, what has been amazing in, in, uh, is that the PSMA test has revolutionized the way we treat metastatic prostate cancer as well. Because for the first time, we can see much more clearly where the disease is and possibly where the disease is not. And so we now know with this excellent PET scan, specific PET scan, where those sites of disease are. And now what is emerging in the field is that at least for limited bone metastases, there is the notion out there that with more aggressive therapies, there could be in selected patients a potential long-term remission, complete remission of disease. And that is achieved by, yes, using hormonal therapy, of course, with the help of the medical oncologist, and then adding to this regimen the internal, well, the internal radiation and even the targeted external radiation, but comprehensively treating all the sites of disease. And if we have a handle on treating all of the sites of disease and it's more limited, and not wait till it's progressed to multiple sites, this may be an option for patients with, to achieve a better long-term outcome. And so the term has emerged right now, patients with oligometastatic disease, which means limited metastases. And if patients have limited metastases, and there are various definitions, one bone metastases, three bone metastases, maybe up to five metastases that could be targeted with either the internal radiation or the like. Research is now being done to see if such a theranostic approach, as Dr. Sloven had been discussing, could be employed even for earlier states of metastatic disease. And I think that's where the excitement in research is going to be emerging in the next number of years, exploring the possibilities of treating people with earlier states of metastatic disease by using more comprehensive and aggressive approaches. Side effects of general radiation to the bone, sometimes it gives a flare of pain, but in general, radiation to these sites are usually very well tolerated. Sometimes the blood counts could be lowered and therefore they need to be addressed. And one final point I would make is that radiation oncologists are well aware that if the bone is very weak as a result of 
the metastatic disease there, that in some cases orthopedic stabilization may be necessary to strengthen that bone before giving the radiation in order to prevent fractures that could happen as a result of the radiation. But mind you, these fractures are rare and only observed if the bone disease is so extensive in a weight-bearing bone that it could have an impact on the, um, the, the really the strength of the bone and its ability to withstand weight. And in those cases where there is extensive involvement, sometimes orthopedic stabilization is needed before the radiation. Otherwise, not much more. So to summarize, uh, radiation has always been an important adjunct to therapy uh, for metastatic disease. And the exciting aspects of research in the years ahead will be exploring these targeted treatments that we talked about already, targeting patients that have more limited disease where the potential possibilities of long -term, longer-term remissions may be something that we could see in the future. Thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slavsky. That was an outstanding presentation. Um, very, very uh, important in terms of the role of radiation treatment for metastatic prostate cancer and all the details that you provided. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. And Dr. Alon O'Donnell is Clinical Director of Early Detection and Prevention of Cancer, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell is going to be addressing the role of physical activity in coping with metastatic prostate cancer guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for the opportunity to join the Cancer Care Teleconference today to discuss lifestyle considerations, physical activity, and optimizing your use of telemedicine uh, in metastatic uh, prostate cancer settings. My name is Betsy O'Donnell. I'm a physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I also have a specialty in lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle medicine is the incorporation of, of healthy habits, evidence-based healthy habits, into our, our overall healthcare. So that would include physical activity, nutrition, sleep, stress, relationships, and also the use of substances. And so many patients, uh, when they have a cancer diagnosis, will ask their doctors, what can I do um, to help myself feel better and to better, you know, my outcomes uh, in this cancer process? And so um, one of the common topics are physical activity and um, nutrition and sleep. And so physical activity is so important, particularly for patients with metastatic prostate cancer who may be on medications um, that, that limit the amount of testosterone production. When you go on those types of therapy, what can happen is you can lose some of that lean muscle mass that you've had. And so staying active is really important. Um, physical activity is a little bit use it or lose it, of course, and so trying to keep doing the things you've always done to the extent you can, doing the dishes, um, you know, light housework, things of that nature, really avoiding being sedentary and spending too much time seated uh, or not moving about. Now, in the right circumstance, 
uh, and with the approval of your doctor, talking about actual exercise may be appropriate. Um, exercise can cover a broad range of activities. Um, it can be uh, certainly riding a stationary bike, um, going for a brisk walk, uh, but other things too like yoga, housework, uh, all of these can uh, be useful in terms of per preserving physical function. And not only that, physical activity can also make you feel better. Patients who exercise have been shown to have um, less depression, better sleep quality, better libido. Uh, so being active can really um, not only preserve physical functioning, but may also make you uh, feel better as well. And I like to say you don't need a gym to be active. Um, simple things like chores or also just turning on some music and moving, dancing in your house counts as activity. Um, so really trying to engage in things that feel good but also preserve your physical functioning. One of the other common questions uh, that patients have is about using telemedicine effectively. Uh, one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic is that we are now able uh, to do some visits virtually for patients. And this can be great. Uh, it can limit the amount of time spent commuting, paying for parking, uh, but it's also good to come prepared for those appointments. One of the other benefits of telehealth is that um, you know people who may not otherwise be able to come to appointments can join you in those visits. And so really trying to be prepared to optimize your time with your provider um, when you have these visits. I often encourage my patients to make lists of the questions they might have. Your doctors really want to hear from you and they want to know what's most important to you. Specifically, what kind of symptoms are you having? Are there factors in your life um, that are contributing to uh, issues with taking medicines? Are you having side effects in medicines? Uh, are there changes in your circumstances that are new stressors for you? Uh, really, when we think about our patients as providers, we really want to think of them as whole people, not just patients. And so it helps us to really understand um, what's going on in your life and how we can really interact and, and help you to optimize not only your cancer treatment, but also uh, your overall quality of life. And so with that in mind, it's really important uh, to prepare for these visits with lists of questions and also important information. Sometimes you get in that moment and you forget uh, what you wanted to ask or, or you forget what happened two weeks ago. So keeping a log, writing those things down, writing down side effects of the medications and, and partnering with um, a spouse or another caregiver uh, to be part of those visits can really help to optimize those visits and get the most out of them. Again, really your patient their, your entire care team, your doctor, your nurse practitioner, we all really want to hear from you and we want to make sure that all of your visits um, are of the greatest benefit to you during your cancer care. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you about physical activity and also about optimizing uh, telemedicine. Thank you for your attention and best wishes. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. So stellar and actually um, lots of great information for our participants. So thank you so much. I'm going to say a few words about cancer care and then we're going to um, have questions. So please get your questions ready. I know some of you have submitted questions already, but we're happy to take as many of your questions as we're able to. 
Um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm the Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. I want to talk about Cancer Care's free programs and services. <clears throat> so many people in the United States call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673. And that number is um, staffed by oncology social workers who answer the phone. And there's a very, there's no, you don't have to queue very long to get someone. There's no queue up. We really monitor that. Social workers are assigned to answer phones at certain times. And usually people call us with a specific question. And that services are free and they're national in scope as well, just to be aware of that. So we do offer a host of services. We offer support. We offer online support groups. We offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, which can be very, very helpful at this time uh, indeed. Um, and um, um, we also offer these workshops and publications as well. And you can access all of our services on our Cancer Care website, www.cancercare.org. And that will list all the even more programs that I've mentioned. And I do want to mention a word about the online support groups. We have so many of them. There are some specific to metastatic prostate cancer. There are some for caregivers. Um, there are some for older adults, for younger adult caregivers. Um, so it really covers the spectrum. And then for every other type of cancer and for every other situation, indeed, um, uh, parents of, of children with cancer. So we really covered the entire age spectrum in our, in our programs. Um, so just to be aware, we do also have a Cancer Care for Kids program in which we offer services to children and families, and we do have a cancer care camp in the summer as well for, for kids. Um, so um, just to be aware of just the range of services you'll be able to see on our website. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Emma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, so we have some questions here. Um, um, this is for, um, for Dr. Slovin. Why is PSA the only metric to see if the treatment was a success? Why not use other techniques such as a CAT scan or something else? When, when, when do you know if you are cured? Thank you for the question. Uh, I, it, it may have just passed by, but I did mention that in addition to PSA, I, I indicated that PSA is not always the most reliable marker and that we rely much more heavily on imaging. And the imaging after a treatment could be either a bone scan, a CAT scan, a uh, FDG PET scan, or even a PSMA PET scan. There's a lot of imaging modalities. So PSA is a reflection of disease activity. It is not always reflective of tumor volume, such that if your PSA were to go from two to four, really it's, it, you don't have twice the amount of disease at four compared with two. But to answer your question very succinctly, the idea is to use a variety of different imaging tests, not to mention some investigational uh, tests that are not really uh, FDA approved as yet, but could be used, and that has to be uh, along the lines of circulating tumor DNA, uh, a variety of genomic markers, but really the tried and true that we do go by is imaging. And how do we know whether or not you're cured? We never know if you're cured. I prefer to say that you are in remission, and if remission lasts until the day that uh, 
uh, you visit uh, the other world, then I would say you're cured. But the reality is that even patients who are in remission are followed periodically for PSA relapse or for new disease that uh, suddenly just appears. It doesn't mean that you have to live with the sword of Damocles hanging over your head, but with every patient, it's important to have good follow-up, whether it's by your primary care doctor or your oncologist or your radiation doctor or at least somebody who knows your circumstances and can intercede if necessary. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Um, lots of great information. So a um, question from one of our participants for Dr. Zlowski. What does orthopedic stabilization of bone mean? Uh, thank you for that question. And what it means is that let's say we're dealing with a situation where the disease is in the leg bone, the femur, and there is an extensive amount of disease there. It is a weight-bearing bone because that's what you stand on. And if the disease is extensive there uh, and you're standing on it uh, without any treatment, it's going to be prone to break or a fracture. Now, when you give radiation initially, there is a weakening of the bone because it's trying to kill the disease. And so the cement there is pretty fragile, uh, the bone cement, so to speak. And therefore, not infrequently, if there is extensive disease in a weight-bearing bone, then we get the orthopedic specialist to look and see if it's necessary to stabilize that bone, which means sometimes to put in a, a metal rod to strengthen the bone, as is done when there's any uh, kind of fracture of a weight-bearing bone. But the purpose of stabilizing it and putting a, a rod in, so to speak, would be to strengthen that bone. And so then radiation treatments are given with much less of a concern for a subsequent fracture. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much for explaining that. And that's really, I think, helpful to our participants. Thank you so much. Um, also, a question is being asked if the call is being recorded to review it another time, yes, this will become a podcast in a couple of days, and the podcast will contain closed caption um, as well. Um, so um, it takes a couple of days for the, for the um, podcast with closed caption to appear on our website. It'll be there in, in probably early next week. Next week. Um, okay, now. Um, So for Dr. Slovin, what is your opinion on pelvic floor muscle exercises for problem with leaking urine? Are they as effective as other measures such as anticholinergics? Thank you for that question. It's actually a very good question. Alas, uh, I am not a urologist, but sometimes I have to play one in clinic. So what I, what I know about this is really based on patients who have suffered very severe urinary incontinence after uh, surgery, meaning prostatectomy. And the pelvic floor rehabilitation has actually been very helpful for some, but not all of our patients. So essentially, it's a variety of different uh, exercises and actual physical contact within the, the rectal uh, bed, which appears to decrease the amount of leakage. Uh, I've not seen it really abate for all of my patients. Some improve. We have 
in some situations uh, advocated the use of an artificial urinary sphincter, which actually uh, has a little valve that goes at the base of the bladder. I'm sorry, not a, ba- a valve, a, uh, a little, um, I don't want to call it a cup at the base of the bladder with a, um, a little connection that's in the scrotum, you still feel the urge to void, but when you have to void, you just uh, press on this little button in the scrotum and the sphincter opens and you uh, empty your bladder very, very the same way you normally would. So I would say that if uh, somebody is having issues with urinary incontinence, uh, I would certainly seek out your urologist. The first order is usually medications. The second uh, order can be trying pelvic floor rehabilitation, which, as I said, may benefit for some, uh, but not all people, or consideration of an artificial urinary sphincter. There's absolutely no reason for anybody to be walking around in a wet diaper. Yet a lot of my patients who are retired see nothing wrong with that until they have a moment where they either have to be at some sort of affair or have to meet with uh, friends where they do realize or become very self-conscious that maybe it's not the best thing for them. So definitely please reach out to uh, your urologist uh, for further input. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. And for uh, for Dr. Slavsky, if I'm taking pain-relieving drugs and undergoing radiotherapy for my metastatic prostate cancer diagnosis, is it safe to be on antibiotics and pain-relieving antibiotics for an infection? Will this affect my treatment? Uh, Thank you for that question. It is an excellent one. And the answer is simply not an issue, even when patients are on on pain-relieving medications for their bone pain. The use of antibiotics is generally not considered a contraindication. And if there is a urine infection, for instance, it would be most appropriate to be on the antibiotics, even if you need to be on some pain-relieving medications such as Tylenol with codeine or um, some things which are stronger. So the answer is um, it's generally not a problem, and um, if you need to treat an infection with antibiotics uh, in general, that's what should be done. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you very much. And. Um, Question for Dr. Um, Slovin. I have been advised by my oncologist that my current ADT treatments must fail at lowering PSA before any new treatment will be prescribed. Is this the case at Memorial Sloan Kettering or Dana-Farber Cancer Center Clinic? Well, that's that's a bit of a, a loaded question. I think uh, I, I think it needs a little bit of, of explanation here. We start off with standard of care conventional treatments. They will usually benefit the patient anywhere from perhaps two to five years, at which time we then would change treatments. Now, that is not an impediment to a new treatment. It's just the standard of care practice in oncology that we, if, we're, if the patient is benefiting from a treatment, that you remain on that treatment until it fails and then go on to your next line of treatment. I mean, there's a treatment algorithm that we use. I think the confusion is that very often for clinical trials, clinical trials, uh, as an example, very often are meant for patients who have had prior therapies uh, 
they may have certain parameters that indicate that their tumor burden or their disease burden is limited to certain areas or that they have had certain treatments before going on to a new drug. So anything doing, dealing with a, an investigational trial, if we're trying a new drug, we want to have it in a new landscape. We want it to fail. I mean, excuse me, we want not to fail, but we want it to follow uh, a treatment that had been previously uh, unacceptable. So that is the way we do things. We don't stop a treatment benefiting a patient in the middle and say, okay, this new drug came out, let's, let's go for it. It's very, very rare that we would stop a beneficial treatment in favor to going on a new treatment unless that new treatment, uh, unless, first of all, uh, you meet the criteria for going on to the new treatment, number one, or there is some suggestion based on the PSA that maybe it's not doing what it did before. Your disease is still under control, but maybe the benefits are less, at which point your doctor would have the conversation with you of, you know, why don't we, why don't we cut our losses now and switch to another treatment? So there's, there's a lot of nuance there. It's not a hard and fast rule, but I think one has to get a sense of when we do do treatments uh, for prostate cancer, they, they all are prescribed within a certain what we call clinical state, meaning when you're, you have new disease, when the disease fails, or when the disease progresses or presents with metastatic uh, disease at uh, diagnosis. So uh, I don't think that this is, uh, has nothing to do with an institution. It's how we practice. I hope that answers your question. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. And for Dr. Zalewski, and it may also be for Dr. Slovin too, how often should you have a bone scan or MRI? Michael, well, you want to take um, that? Or it, it, it all depends, Dr. right? Uh, yes, I would say I'm going to defer to Dr. Slovin about it, but it heavily depends on the extent of the disease uh, that you're starting off with, what type of therapy is being administered, um, and the response to that therapy based on PSA. So there's no hard and fast rule that every X number of months you need a bone scan. It's heavily dependent upon your response and the oncologist's concern uh, of uh, a suspicion for progressing disease, um, Dr. Slovin. Yeah, I, I would agree with Dr. Zalewski. There's no hard and fast rule. Uh, most of the time, if a patient has uh, a lot of disease at the very beginning and the doctor is very concerned about the medication being used, that it might be not, it may be not effective enough, the doctor may say, well, you know, you have uh, a lot of disease. I'm worried about this. I really want to recheck in three months. Now, when people are on clinical trials, it is dogma so to speak, to have trials written in at very specific intervals. And that's really dictated by trial design, the nature of the drug, and also the pharmaceutical company in terms of how do we assess. I will say, though, that sometimes if you've just started a drug and you are doing a bone scan within a very short period of time, the, the bone is healing. And very often, if you do a bone scan too early on in the treatment, what ends up happening is that the bone scan may look worse before it looks better. Why? Because the, the lesions in bone take up uh, calcium pyrophosphate, and that is, 
a, me a measure more or less of activity in the bone, meaning that when somebody is there, when the bones are healing, there is a much more ac uh, level of activity, a much greater level of activity in the bone so that the intensity on the bone skin may look worse before it looks better. As it heals, you will see less and less activity. So doing it too frequently can backfire and, and make us think that my, the, the disease is worse. But again, it depends on the extent of disease, what you're dealing with, the treatment, and the doctor's knowledge of the biology of your cancer that will dictate how to best proceed. Excellent. Thank you. And um, now we actually are almost at the end of the call, and I want to ask both of our speakers to just provide a takeaway, starting with Dr. Slovin and then Dr. Zalewski, just a takeaway from today's program. A sentence or two, um, great. Okay, Th thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, for the opportunity. Uh, two words of wisdom. I am a very strong believer in immunizations, and I do feel that they offer some level of protection. Uh, all of my patients who made the annual migration to Florida and had COVID in Florida have done very, very well. Uh, since they took their vaccines, they've had minimal side effects, and they've done wonderfully, and they continue on their treatment. The second takeaway is that we really have come very, very far in the treatment of our, our patients who have prostate cancer. People are doing well. They feel well. Uh, their uh, ability to accomplish a variety of personal goals has also been extended. They are watching children graduate, grandchildren graduate, great-great-grandchildren uh, graduating from schools. They have uh, a lot of things that they're accomplishing that they never thought they would do. And I would just reinforce that you need to trust your doctor because there are so many treatments and just because something is not working is not a deterrent to the fact that overall you will fail in your in your treatment. There are still so many things to do. And as always, clinical trials lead to drug approvals and the opportunity to get onto a clinical trial uh, first line is also very, very reasonable. I hope that helps. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Slavsky? Yes, I echo the uh, comments of Dr. Sloven and would uh, give the following two takeaway points. Number one, radiation therapy is a very effective modality in alleviating pain within the bone for metastatic prostate cancer. And while hormonal therapy and other regimens can help, uh, certainly ask your oncologist about the role of radiation if a particular bone lesion is bothersome and affecting the routine, the quality of life, uh, a very rapid uh, improvement can be achieved with radiation therapy with generally very few side effects. And the second is the notion of the really emerging research that is now going on with what has been described in this call as theranostics, targeted radiation uh, to pick up and deposit their radiation at specific sites in the body. And we're exploring as well other opportunities of combining that with even external radiation. We may in future talks be more aware of opportunities to address 
metastatic disease and have caught on the earlier side, I think the prognosis would be better, especially with these newer therapies that will eventually become available. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Slavsky. And this has been an amazing call. I want to thank both our speakers and our participants. Our participants asked really great questions today. Although we've done this program before, I'd say the questions today were were really amazing. And, and so I want to thank all of you and our speakers particularly as well. And I do want to remind you that there is a part two to this series, and this was for caregivers, for caregiving for a loved one with metastatic prostate cancer. It's on May 23rd. Some of you have signed up for this already, but if you haven't, um, you'll be getting more information about this. But just, uh, um, just a, a wonderful call today, and just um, I really appreciate all of everyone's, um, everyone's participation. Now, I do want to just, in summing up, just want to remind all of you that you are not alone. I know that it's often tempting to feel you're alone and coping with your, with your metastatic prostate cancer, any type of cancer. Please know that, first of all, you're part of your health, your healthcare team. They are, of course, they know you the best. So anyone who asked a question today or has a question yet to ask or thinking of a question, go back to your treating healthcare team because they have all of your records. They know everything about you. And indeed, be sure that you ask your questions of your healthcare team. Prepare that list of questions, whether it be in person or on, on a telemedicine appointment, but ask your questions and ask them over and over again and any other questions you think of. Also, um, please be aware that you certainly, and your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines. Of course, your treating physician, your oncologist, your radiation oncologist. Also, you also have an oncology nurse, oncology social worker. Um, there's also a patient navigator, financial navigator, um, so many different resources on your team that if you have concerns or questions, they're there for you as well. Also, you certainly can contact Cancer Care, speak to our oncology social workers, join one of our online support groups, or talk to one of our social workers. That's available to you as well. And also, of course, participate in programs going forward. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.